Good morning. How's everybody today? Hey, I want to say good morning to some special friends that are here, Jelmer and Elaine Greenwald. Would you guys just stand up and let us acknowledge you? And I'm going to tell you about them, but give them a big hand. All right. Hey, you guys. So you know how we say when we run into soldiers and stuff, we say thanks for your service. Jelmer has been a longtime pastor in Sunnyside, Washington, in a, in a challenging culturally diverse neighborhood that's reached out to a Latino population uh, in some distress and transition. Uh, and I'll tell you, it's just been a wonderful ministry they've had. But the greatest contribution they've made to the kingdom of God is their two children and a daughter-in-law who attend here for church. <laughs> so um, they still have three kids to get moved back in here to the Seattle area. I was working on one during our fellowship time. And he assures me as soon as his wife is cleared to be a professor at the UW in English, we'll get her hired out here. So anyway, welcome, you guys. It's really nice to see you here today. Um, we are going through the book of Ephesians. And I had the privilege of writing a book about the book a number of years ago, back in the, I think we call it the 90s. So for those of you who were around then, um, anyway, it was, a, it was fun to write a book and focus on one particular book of scripture for about a year, year and a half of study and writing and editing. If you've ever written a book, you reread your book and get your book re-shoved down your throat, you know this at least, about 10 or 15 times during the process of getting it ready. So um, there was a period of time in which I was okay not messing with Ephesians, but it's nice to come back to it these years later and, and feel the warmth of how it's informed my spiritual life. And one of the things about Ephesians is if you read the book correctly, it has a great benefit. If you read the book incorrectly, you can become a legalistic, dead, work-bound, burned-out attempt at a Christian life. So basically, this book indicates to us that we can get our spirituality right or wrong. And I want to throw this out. How many of you would consider yourselves grammarians? Anybody here good at grammar? Okay, well, you, you better be right. I, okay, <laughs> Kathy O's good at grammar. Okay, well, I, I believe you guys. I'm going to test you, though, okay? So here's the first test. If I say something just as a statement of fact, this is a music stand. What case is that in? In? Would that be in the indicative? <laughs> oh, come on, you guys. Where's the English teacher when I need her? Okay, there's the indicative. That's a statement, right? Now, if I was to ask you a question like, what is this? That's the interrogative. If I said to you, bring me this, that's the imperative, right? And those three voices, those cases, make a tremendous difference in how you interpret the sentence you heard. For instance, when I see a sign that says, right turn only coming out of Safeway, and I know they put it there, not the cops, I turn whatever way I want. other hand, if a blue Ford Escape that had lights on the top of a little sign on the side that said SPD was sitting right there and it said no left turn and they had the Washington law code at the bottom of it, you think I'm going to take a left? I'm going to go right every time, right? So you pay attention to the imperative, particularly when it comes from a source that has the ability to um, set you up or knock you down, okay? So here's the deal. Ephesians is a book that's written in two parts. And 
The parting line in the book makes the difference in whether you interpret it right or wrong. Now, a lot of people, and I've heard people say this with Ephesians, well, I read the book and there's a lot of this fluffy stuff, but man, when you get to about chapter four, Paul just starts laying it down. This is what it means to walk in the spirit. This is what it means to walk in the light. This is what it means to love one another. This is what it means to sharpen each other. This is what it means to live into the gifts of God. But you know what? That is indicative. The second half of the book is the indicative of what we live out in our lives. The imperative is not to do the Christian moralities. It's in chapter four, five, and six. That's indicative. You will be that kind of person if you're in Christ. The indicative is to be in Christ. And if you try to live out chapters four, five, and six without living into Jesus, you're sunk. It's a great futile act of working to try to present yourself perfect before God when he's already presented us as perfect before him. Okay? So the voice, the case, makes a huge difference. In Ephesians, the most important part of the book is the first three chapters, which describe the imperative nature of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That being in a relationship with Jesus Christ and eternal destiny is as important as air is being alive as a human being and walking about in this world. You wouldn't get far without breathing. You don't get far in the Christian life without being intricately and intimately and deeply given over to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So as we do this Ephesians series, remember these first three chapters are the imperative to be in Christ. And if you nail that, you're going to see the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of a relationship with Jesus Christ ooze out of your life. And those things that are in chapter 4, 5, and 6 are going to just be regular parts of your life. And we're going to talk about those in the weeks to come, and we're going to take them seriously. And we're going to pray for and, and believe for those things in our lives, but only on the basis that we're pre-empowered to live into that because of Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying here? This is really, really important. If you get this wrong, you get grace wrong, and you become a legalist, you will be miserable. You'll make everybody around you miserable because you'll try to turn them into the person that you wish you were, but you're not. Okay? Think about that for a second. We do that all the time. Okay? So I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and we're going to read this in the imperative voice and hear what it has for us. And you're going to get a time sequence here in this. What you're going to hear is, this is how you used to be, this is how you are now. This is what you could be without Christ. This is what you are in Christ. This is what you will be in Christ. This is what you'll be outside of Christ, right? These contrasts are all the way in this section. You'll hear that kind of sense of then and now. And we'll talk about that some more this morning. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, says the text, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind that were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. You get that sense of how blessed a state it is to be in Christ and just keep building up stronger and stronger case when we're in him in order that in the ages to come we might show the surprising and surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, 
not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me for a sec. Lord God, it's good to know that we're here for a purpose, that you have a purpose for us, and that our purpose is to know you and be known by you in greater depth all the time. And Lord, in knowing you, we intend to see ourselves transformed bit by bit into your image, into our destiny, that the actions of our lives would be productive and life-giving. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Jesus, you're our rock and our redeemer. And we thank you for your word in Ephesians. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I love this piece of scripture. I really do. It tells us straight out about who we are at the core. And it tells us straight out what God is like at the core. As we read this, we probably become a little bit less fascinated with ourselves and our own possibilities. A little bit more aware of our frailty. And way more aware of God's greatness and the magnitude of God's love and mercy toward us. It's a picture of the decrepit being made valuable by the miracle of God's love. You see, God takes residence in Jesus Christ in our lives. He pours out his love in our human hearts, hearts like yours and mine. And God takes residence in us and he infuses into us value. The value we have comes because we're created in the image of God and because he dwells in us in Jesus Christ. This passage describes human beings as dead because of our willingness to obey the wrong voices and impulses. And the voices in our culture, the voices in our head, ourself, are very, very strong, aren't they? You ever realize, you, know, you, you sometimes, at least for me, in, when it comes to living life in the spirit, my internal instincts that are not always godly and wholesome, my self-survival, my exertion of the will, those things rise to the top really quickly. But this passage describes the fact that a lot of our willfulness, a lot of our impulses are actually impulses toward the unwholesome, impulses toward that which kills us. It describes us as being devoured by our own lusts. You know, I, I'm, I'm not one to take social hobby horses very long, but very often, but I want to just, as I describe some of these things, talk about the predominance of things, some things in our culture that I find alarming and enlightening. So it says we're devoured by our own lusts. You know, I've been reading some stuff lately on the long-term effects of our sexual fix, fixation in our culture and lust, and in particular, uh, as that tops out in the pornography industry. And you know, there are groups being formed around the country now by people who don't have any sense of moral spirituality or anything that are helping treat people who've been addicted to this, this issue of pornography and, and sexual addiction. And you know why they've had the strong response is they're finding people who from the age of six, seven, and eight years old are so immersed in pornography that when they enter into a human relationship with a person of the opposite sex, they can't experience intimacy. Their physical, physical body is dead to intimacy and won't respond because they took God's intended purpose for sexuality and bent it into something else that's titillation and stimulation for other issues. And all of a sudden, the beautiful gift of sex that God has given is inaccessible to a generation of people because of what they've done to themselves in our culture and capitulating to a multi-billion dollar a year industry 
we, we wind up ravaged by our twisted values. I was just reading uh, in the last week, they did a, a survey of the millennial generation, and they, I, I, I think it's a wonderful generation. I have two kids in it. I'm greatly hopeful for what the millennials will bring to our world. They're the hope of the future, and I think they're going to do great things. But they're stuck with problems with values just like every generation. And in this generation, they said the most predominant thing that anybody wanted wasn't things or power or anything else. There's none of the ends of this. It was just pure money. There was a fixation on how much money do I have? How much money can I accumulate? How safe can I make myself with stacks of money? And the researchers were kind of shocked on this because they thought maybe the the uh, millennials were going to be a more uh, experiential, you know, don't live to work, but work to live generation. But they found out then that through it all, this, this generation has a really high value on money. And this is a, money is something that's given to us as a gift, again, to give and use and steward our lives, not something to be amassed that somehow sets us apart from other people and makes us cooler or more safe. I don't know if the people who do that notice this, but I heard Phyllis Diller once say in a TV interview, if you don't know Phyllis Diller, I won't go any further than she's a crazy lady. But she said, she said, I've never seen an armored car following a hearse to a cemetery. You just don't see that. People die, their money goes a different direction. They go in the ground. Okay, and that's how it works. So anyway, we, we are in a culture, and always every culture in the world has been this way, where we distort the image of God. And we have a tendency to take on these values that are very captivating, but also very harmful. Human beings are described as being so hard toward God in this text that literally we become enemies of God and his purposes. Now, you've probably had an enemy before, and you know how painful that can be. You wonder what they're thinking about you. You wonder what they're doing. I I once had a person I worked with. It's unfortunate. I worked in the radio business, and I was... People have different talents for doing different times of the day. And I, I was particularly good in the, in the midday shift, you know, like 10 to, 10 to 2 in the afternoon. A lot of times in rock and roll radio, they called that the housewife or the working person shift and stuff. And I, I really enjoyed working with that audience. It did pretty well. Well, there was one poor soul who, unfortunately, every time I got hired at a radio station, he seemed to get fired. And I wound up getting his job. Didn't dislike the person or anything, but he came to really dislike me, which I could understand. But everything I did when I was around him, he disagreed with. And any time I turned my back, he was trying to undermine me in this passive-aggressive behavior. And I thought, you know, I could really be offended by that guy's behavior toward me, but that's how I am toward God. God asks something of me, and I do a little superficial gloss and response in front of everybody else when I'm off on my own. I go back to protecting myself, getting my way. And um, that's just the way we are. We tend to sabotage God's goodness because we forget about him and we click on to those instincts that are in our culture that are so powerful and so distracting. When I look at my dark side, I see this pattern in me all the time. And I don't know if you see it with you, but I just need to sometimes surrender and recognize that the best I can do isn't good enough without the Lord in my life. As much as we can be jaded about our human nature, and I'm saying this to kind of sober us up because you know how bad we can possibly be, but God has made a capacity 
for us to be as good as we are bad because of his presence in our life in the spirit. But that doesn't happen because we pay moral attention to what we're doing. It happens because we pay attention to being in Christ and allowing his mind and his attitudes to fill us and shape our lives. Um, and I think it's really good for us every once in a while to back ourselves into this corner where I, to say, I can't do this on my own. You go to Alcoholics Anonymous, what's the first thing they say? I realize that I'm powerless over this thing that's got me. We're powerless over this thing called sin. We're powerless over our ability to be sh distracted by short-term lusts and ambitions and twisted values. We're, we're, we're just defenseless against that stuff. The only defense is to again and again come back to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, refill me. I'm empty. Acknowledging our emptiness is a starting point to receive God's fullness. And that sense of being rescued, if you don't like the fact that Jesus Christ rescues us, you hear the song, Jesus saves, and you see that around, but maybe think of it as old school religion language. So let's just change the language Jesus saved to, Jesus has rescued me primarily for myself. <laughs> and he's rescued me from the twisted values of this world to be his workmanship and represent him in the world. Okay? So it's, it's a two-sided thing, but we have to recognize our decrepitness to enter into it. And I think the wonder of the Christian story is wrapped up in God's ability to come to us and bring value to our lives. Kenneth Filkins is a fellow who wrote a little poem thing, a little anecdote called The Pit. And I just love this, and I want to I read it for you. A man fell into a pit, and he couldn't get out. A, subject, a, a subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that somebody would fall in a pit like this. I mean, you're walking along not paying attention, you fell in a hole. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in the pit. A charismatic triumphalist Christian came along and said, just confess that you're not in the pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall in a pit, so you must be a bad person. A fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. Buddha said, your pit's just a state of mind. A Hindu said, this pit is for purging you and making you more perfect. Life after life after life. Confucius said, if you would have listened to me, you never would have fallen into this pit. A new ager came along and said, maybe you should network with some other pit dwellers. <laughs> like that one? An evolutionist said, you're a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. You're going to die in the pit so you don't reproduce other, reproduce other inferior pit-falling offspring. A self-pitying person came along and said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A news reporter said, could I have the exclusive on your pit? An IRS man said, have you paid taxes on that pit? As the Beatles said, and when you die, he'll take the pennies from your eyes, the tax man. A county inspector said, do you have a permit for that pit? A realist said, yep, that's a pit. An idealist said, the world shouldn't have pits in it. Ride this baby here, okay? An optimist said, things could get worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. Jesus came along 
and seeing the man in the pit, he took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. Jesus Christ has lifted us out of the pit. Even though we were dead in sins and trespasses, we were made alive together with Jesus Christ. No longer dead, no longer slaves to our impulses, no longer destined to emptiness, but destined literally to glory, destined to the weightiness of knowing the creator of the universe and walking with him and participating with him in renewing our own lives, renewing our relationships and communities and renewing the world around us, renewing Greenwood because we got a real drug problem. We got a homeless problem here. This neighborhood has changed in the last several years. People that we used to greet at the Green Bean and just provide radical hospitality for are people now that possibly can't even come in the Green Bean and hang out with us because they're out, out of control. They're, they're ill. They're sick. And we need to figure out new ways to reach people in our neighborhood in addition to ways we've already been there. These are the challenges we faced. But Jesus Christ is alive in us. And we're alive in him and with him to address those issues. We've been rescued by the grace of God who simply chosen to have mercy on us and pull us out of the pit when we yell for help. No rationalizations, no requirements, no help from us, just the mercy of God. This is all well and good, but some of us here today really don't feel that alive. We don't feel all that free from the ways of the world. I often feel imprisoned by the things that drag me down. And there's a problem for me. I don't know if the problem for you is I may be making a little progress in my spiritual life as I go along. I like to believe that I am. And, and, and you probably are too as you, as you follow Jesus. But one of the things I often experience is this gap between what I know to do and what I want to do and what I'm able to pull off. You realize, and I'm always performing under what I know. Does anybody else feel that way? Okay. That's called a perception gap. Because you have to know that your game is not perfect before you pay attention to your game and change it. Right? So you always live in this perception gap. And self-condemnation, self-hatred, or denial are, are horrible things in that situation because they're just putting off the inevitable recognition you're going to have to make that you're helpless to do anything outside of Jesus Christ. So this perception gap is real, and we have to learn to deal with it. Now, as a high school kid, I was a big guy, but I was really a good water skier. We had a lot of friends, and we had a water ski club out at our beach place in Treasure Island called the Wild Abandoned Ski Club, and we, we went out and skied buoys, and we entered into some tournaments and stuff like that. And I skied pretty seriously to the point where I got my skis free from a manufacturer over here by Nathan Hale called Conley Water Skis. And Pat Conley and Greg Horn, who were the founders of that company, were giving me some tips on the new trends in water skiing. This is a long time ago. But it used to be when you are ski, you lean back and flip your ski over and push all this water up in the air and make big sprays and everything. But that wasn't the most effective way to keep going back and forth around buoys. So this guy said, well, we found a new way. It's a lot more like snow skiing where you actually lean forward on your ski let go with one hand and fall way over like this to bring your hand over and grab it. And you're actually leaning forward over your ski, real low to the water, and you go shooting across the wake. And by the way, the first time you do it and, do it and don't fall down doing it, you just realize it's like twice as fast. And all of a sudden, you're going from 35 miles an hour to about 60, going across the wake of the boat to go out and get the next buoy. Well, 
I learned to want to learn to do that, but I was terrified. If you've been leaning back all the time to water ski and protect yourself, and somebody tells you to lean forward, has, does anybody here water ski? Raise your hand if you water ski. Has anybody here taken a header stall on water skiing before? Yes. I've fallen many times at 35, 40 miles an hour, and it's really a trip. Because basically, you come up to the surface again, thinking that body parts are probably spread around the bay behind you, uh, and oftentimes your swimming trunks were. Um, <laughs> that was always an interesting little trip. You want a deep water start, Randy? I said, well, yeah, after you go down there about an eighth of a mile and get my suit and bring it back to me, and I put it on under the water here. Um, you know. So, so anyway, what the guy told me is there, there were three things that I had to do. They were simple probably self-evident, but if I would just do them, I would get past my perception gap with water skiing. One is I had to stop thinking about the negative. So if, you, if you're going to lean forward on your ski and you say, I'm going to lean forward and I could fall on my face, what are you going to do? You're going to fall on your face. So you have to get over the thought that it's not going to work. The second you have to do is do it over and over again until it starts to feel right. It doesn't feel right when you're water skiing and you're going really fast to stick your face down toward the water if you don't like tumbling across the water and getting ripped up. But the fact is, that's the way you go to turn, okay? And then the third thing is, you have to sort of ignore and deny the old impulses to lean back and rescue yourself, okay? Well, if you think about that, that's some of the Christian life. Stop second-doubting yourself. Don't trust yourself at all. Trust Jesus. And when you trust him, trust him to take you through whatever you got to face. And get used to that. Come to that daily. You never have to be ashamed, no matter how bad a day you've had, no matter how bad a thing you've done or how bad a thought you had, of facing Jesus and saying, Lord, that's just one more evidence that I can't do it on my own and I need you. Rescue me. But you have to, you have to break the pattern and practice the faith and see it start to take place. And I think it's very, very interesting that most behavior modifications like that water skiing thing. If you do something willingly and it feels good and it feels right and you keep doing it, you get better at it. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was in a family that didn't give charitably. My dad was a self-made man who had really worked hard. And, uh, when I became a Christian, my dad thought I was crazy that I'd give 10% or more of my money to the church. He'd say, well, you could use that. I said, well, the Lord can use it too, but no, no, you should, you should preserve that money. You may need that someday. But Nancy and I have found that over the years, the more you give, the more you want to give. It's not an obligation to tithe. It's a joy. We, we, we look at the missionaries and churches and giving to sanctuary and seeing us happen here as a church. That's a, that's a joy. It's not a pain. And I don't want to ever revert back to the days of counting pennies and being nervous about being charitable and generous and giving. And that's the place where I've learned in my life. There are a lot of places where I'm still learning that, that, that surrendering is, is harder to do. So this whole idea of surrendering to God, coming to him and saying, God, I can't, but you can, and I'm going to believe that you can. I'm going to attach myself to that. Okay. Now, the other thing is, you have to look ahead. Most spiritual life happens looking ahead. 
If you read this passage in Ephesians, let me check my time. If you read this passage in Ephesians, you'll see that the, the voice is always then and now. You used to be this way, now you're this. Then you were this, now you're this. It used to be this, now you're this. The then and now, then and now. And you'll notice that when Paul talks about it, everything that's the then, the stuff we hang on to, is not good. It's the trash. Everything that we want is here in the future, clinging to Jesus and claiming him as our only destiny, right? So you've got to let go of that to be here. And I think that's another thing that's a challenge for me is not to live in my thens, but to come to Jesus in a fresh way and say, Lord, what is now? What is it that you want for me now? What do you want me to know now? And what do you want me to do about what I know now? There's almost this urgent contemporaneous about our personal faith that we come to. And God says, you're worth it. God says to you and me, I believe in you and I'm investing in you to the point of my only begotten son. For your emptiness to be filled by the wholeness of the person who emptied himself on the cross. To freely live into the grace that God has for us as Jesus freely gave himself for us and gives himself to us. We're going to come to the Lord's table today. And um, if you're sensing this rhythm in your life of the then and now, I'd ask you as you come here, what are the challenges? Let's, let's, sometimes these things look like big barriers in our lives. Okay, What are the challenges you have now that are big barriers? That by facing them and handing them off to Jesus the thens, that you could see the, the barrier lower itself. That now you can see over that barrier and see beyond it. And in Jesus Christ, you can, you can achieve that. And this isn't wishful thinking or positive mental attitude. This is simply living into a relationship with Jesus and then allowing him to live that out through you. Okay. So what are your thens and what are the nows that God's calling you to? Think about that this morning as we come to the table. Think about the fact that you're no longer determined by your history and by the things you've gone through, but you're determined by Jesus and the future he holds for you. That is the great hope of the gospel for every single one of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have come near us, that the thens of our life, the places where we've been stuck, are no longer holding sway over us. But what holds sway over us is your grace, your spirit. Jesus, in fact, the spirit that raised you from the dead is the spirit who dwells in us and raises us from the dead places in our lives to a live place in you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your forgiveness. Thank you for your long-suffering patience that while we don't get things and we're slow on the uptake, you're faithful and steady and always there and are constantly coming to us, begging us to come to you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, your love. We hand you our lives, we hand you our concerns, we hand, hand you our fears, our anxieties. 
And we ask you, God, to capture us in your eternal now. And Lord, as we come to this table, we offer you the prayer that you taught your very first disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.